Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hiya, everybody. Hiya, Luke. Hey, Katie. What are we talking about today? Ugh. We are talking about the man, the myth, the mystic, the mad monk of Tobolsk, Grigory Rasputin. Ra, ra, Rasputin, lover of the <laughs> Russian queen. I'm so excited for this podcast. <laughs> oh, man. I want to begin by saying I don't think I've ever walked away from research before feeling like I know significantly less than I knew before. <laughs> mm-hmm. A mysterious man. Oh, the issue with talking about Rasputin is that he was a man completely shrouded in mystery, and a great deal of what we know about him comes from the accounts of people who either were obsessed and loved him or people who fucking hated him. So mm. somewhere between there, obviously, will lie the truth. But I'll be damned if we'll ever really know most of it. <laughs> uh, yes. And we're talking about a period of history and a place in history where historical records are kind of sparse, right? Yeah. And it's... <laughs> it's <laughs> challenged they're challenged records they're challenged records and a lot of uh you know not a russians have a great track record of uh keeping things that make them look bad or talking about things right. that make them look bad so you right. know it's a it's a tricky uh subject to discuss and even so, though you're a muzzy alumni you are not <laughs> conversant in russian right per, per se i have to tell you <laughs> the amount of of Google translating and uh, <laughs> like YouTube videos on how to say things that I have been looking at. And I'm so embarrassed because I actually grew up in a part of Brooklyn that is incredibly Russian to oh, the sure. point, to the point where people used to come up to me on the street and start talking to me in Russian. Cause I guess I look maybe a little Russian and I never picked up a word, which is humiliating. And I really should have, I guess you could be like, really eastern russian i got like some <laughs> slavic look about me right <laughs> let's go with that i do not look like rasputin thank god uh <laughs> so my main source material for this is a incredible book which i actually posted a selfie of me and my book uh it's called rasputin faith power and the twilight of the romanovs and this is by the incredible douglas smith and the reason why this is my main source is because it's one of the only books in recent times. I think this might have been like 2015 or 2016 mm. where he did pretty much all original research. So he wasn't like many other books on Rasputin going and looking at other people's books and basing it on that. This dude went to Russia, got into archives, read God even knows how many letters between mm him and the Romanovs and the Romanovs to the other yeah. Romanovs to cousins to uncles to aunts to friends to the police like it, he just did the work and right. so he did that in 600-ish pages wow. I'm doing it in about six so it's not going to be quite as detailed but this is what we want we want distillation give us exactly the, the low calorie Weight Watcher version you this know. is this is you aren't going to gain a pound on this one I promise you Thank you for my beach body. This is You're very welcome. good. You're welcome. God. Uh, <laughs> this is the one of the most morbid human beings of all time in reputation alone. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty so aware of like a lot of them, the myths and the, the general story of Rasputin is 
pretty pretty well known. I mean, if you're a yeah. history person or if you're a 20th century person or if you've seen the amazing animated movie. <laughs> Which actually, if I'm being honest, that is the most accurate portrayal of Rasputin. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd, right? Isn't that amazing? Yes, as basically zombie Rasputin. <laughs> He's so good. So good. Oh, have you heard? That's a rumor. Rumor in St. Petersburg. Uh, God, the best. But no, sadly, that doesn't give you any information about Rasputin. Right, so there's no green ghosties coming out of a bottle. No, he oh, okay. is. He did not kill the Romanovs. It's so, <laughs> if everything about that movie is incorrect. Also, spoiler alert: Anastasia died. <laughs> <laughs> she did not make it, girl. She did not uh, make it. She did not uh, survive. But anyway, uh, here's what we do know: we know that he was a Siberian peasant, and something that's really interesting about that that I did not know. You know, we think of. Siberia as this desolate wasteland, mm. a dumping ground, if you will, for the degenerates of Russia, a, a prison, really, in many respects. Hearing the word Siberia, I think, fills us with a certain feeling of, oh, no, and terror. But mm -hmm. it also, for many Russians, signified freedom because mm. it was so isolated and remote. And it actually is one of the only places in Russia, I mean, in Europe, that never had serfdom. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So I learned that during this research. And so I think that says a lot about Rasputin's personality yeah. and sort of his behavior around people who were of a much higher class than him. He didn't have that thing ingrained in him where I don't owe these people respect. Yeah. They're not going to respect me. Why would I respect them? So he was pretty liberated from the jump in terms of free freeing his mind of the institutions that many Russian people found themselves enslaved under or oppressed by yes yeah so i and think the fact he, that he lived in siberia is pretty hardy dude if he was able oh, to survive I mean, what's more hardcore the temperature shifts alone are completely nuts before we get into you know his origins just i want to talk about the man and what he looked like i pretty much imagine most of you have seen a picture of him and we are lucky that he is of a time period when there are photographs so those the photographs original, the original hot daguerreotype boyfriend <laughs> i mean <laughs> Sexy. That's a, that's a stretch. <laughs> Sexy if you like a burly caveman. I love type. a greasy, greasy man. <laughs> right? You don't bathe? Delicious. So greasy. <laughs> so yeah, he was striking to look at. He was tall, had mm. dark features. His hair he wore parted very deeply in the middle. He mm. was extremely unkempt looking, had that long, scraggly beard. Apparently, he was not the best with general hygiene and was a fairly stinky guy. <laughs> um, You're welcome here. Uh -huh. But of all, above all else, and I think all you need to do is look at a photo is, to agree with this, is that his eyes, his eyes were huge and they were, different reports say they were like a gray green or like a blue gray or something oh. like that. Um, and they were completely bewitching. Piercing. And, and he used those eyes to manipulate people because he made so much eye contact <laughs> right it's something they report on him a lot unlike many people he would lock eyes with you and talk to you and make you feel like there was no one else there he was great at it he was great at pulling people in he was extremely charming despite mm. his outward appearance and he as we all probably know 
really attracted the ladies. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And as well as his infamous sexual appetite, which mm. has been probably exaggerated, like many mm -hmm. things have with him. But he definitely was a bit of, as we referred to Benjamin Franklin in a previous episode, a hoe for show. <laughs> <laughs> a libertine, yes. Yes, and a little bit darker than just, you know, he was sexual. There have been many accusations of rape and assaults mm -hmm. levied against him. But by and large, it seems most women gave themselves over to him willingly, many of whom were his acolytes, people who really believed in him and just would do anything for him. Bless uh, me, brother. Yeah. Mm. Other little fun facts. He was actually illiterate until he was almost 30. Wow. And then he wrote beautifully. You, I'll read one of his letters later in this episode, and you won't. it, it will be hard to imagine that this man hadn't been reading and writing from a very young age. But that that's part of being a peasant, particularly in Siberia. Sure. You know, they got a hard life. They don't have time for that kind of stuff. They um, don't need to read in Siberia. Don't need to read, no. No, no. And one of my favorite <laughs> things about him, and this again plays into sort of the sexuality thing, is... He really lived by the notion that he who does not sin cannot repent, and he do who does not repent cannot be saved. So I'm a fucking drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. I'll be and, forgiven in the end. Oh, and did he drink? He was a known <laughs> drinker, for sure. That was definitely something that is verifiable. So he was a good time. Is what he you're was a good time, you know, as long as he wasn't getting inappropriate with you which he did with many people who who did not care for his advances. Mm. Um, but he was crude. He was not someone you'd want to invite to your high society dinner. And yet he found himself at many. At the top. At the top. He was apparently quite funny. He was gentle and playful with people that he cared about and felt love for them. He was apparently like a pretty loving father, according to records from his children. He was truly beloved by a few but mostly despised by many. And oh, pooty. Oh, I know. Pooty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poot. <laughs> Above all else, no matter what we know or don't know about him, the one thing that we can all agree on is he is a completely and utterly fascinating historical figure. Mm. So let's talk about his start. Taking it from the top. Grigory Yefemovich Rasputin was born... And already the bullshit starts because I because I said thank you that I, the bullshit starts right now because I saw like four different birthdays for this motherfucker. <laughs> oh yeah, they weren't keeping track of that shit. Well, they also changed the calendar, right? Gregorian yeah. calendar, right? So, oh my god, yeah. So sometimes it's listed as January twenty first, which would mean in the new calendar it's January 9th. and then I even saw it for January twentieth, which P.S. is my birthday, and I was like, no, 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 I don't want. I don't want to share this one. <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. No, no, no thank, thank you. you. According to Mr. Smith here and many of the better resources I found, the agreed upon date is January 9th, 1869. It's my brother's birthday. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Assuming not. <laughs> yeah, cool for him. Not cool for you. Mm, Multiple choice me. birthdays. Yes. <laughs> well, it's also the same birthday as Richard Nixon. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just arrogance galore, huh? Oh my For god. Two out of the three known, yes. <laughs> Paranoid, arrogant. Oh my god. Scary. We're gonna have to talk to your brother. Anyway. Uh, he's okay. He was born in the village of Pakrovska, way out in Tabolsk, Siberia. Uh, and please, 
again, forgive me for my pronunciations. I know less than nothing of the Russian language, <laughs> but I'm doing my best. Some historians think that, like I was mentioning before, this freedom that he sort of grew up with in Russia, this is probably what made him so, what I think the wealthier classes would say, insolent. Yeah. I think it also is what set him up with this frame of mind by the time he was around like 28 years old, that he wanted there to be more. You know, he didn't just feel like, I'm a peasant, that's my life, get up, work, go to bed, get married, have kids, die. Many men of this period did kind of go through these sort of desire for a religious awakening of some kind. And so he mm -hmm. definitely fell into that category. And up until this point, you know, as a youth, again, there is almost nothing concrete about his like first 30 years of life. Right. Uh, there's rumors he was a horse thief. That's really unsubstantiated. The one thing that they could really confirm based on police records and stuff was that he got drunk a bunch and committed some petty thefts, but not a stellar guy, but not a monster by any means. Right. And a horse thief is a major insult. A major so. crime. I mean, yeah. depending on where you are. So at this point, he's not a bad guy, but he's pretty much living like your standard peasant existence. Some people, <laughs> I, I loved reading, people were like, so basically he has like a little midlife crisis in his late 20s <laughs> where he's like, holy shit, this is all there is. Because I guess being a peasant married with kids in Siberia in your 20s and 1890s doesn't sound like a ton of fun. <laughs> Again, bleak. Bleak as, bleak as hell. <laughs> There must be more to life. Oh, God. Yes. So he goes through this little, you know, crisis of conscience or this feeling of like, there has to be more. And he did what many Russian individuals, both rich and poor alike, he went out and became a holy pilgrim known as the Straniki. Mm. I think you say the I? I don't remember. That's right. It was a common notion, like I said, that they would go out and try to visit these holy lands and find connection with God. And some of them did this in varying levels of extremes in terms of some of them would chain themselves or, right. you know, they to really create that burden of I'm a sinner and I'm suffering to see the face of God. Like, I want to find you. I want to find forgiveness. Very as far extreme. as I... Yeah, 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 it can be. Uh, as far as I can tell, he never really did much of that stuff, but he did a lot of the denying yourself pleasure. So he actually had quit drinking. He was a vegetarian. He uh, stopped bathing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you basically just become feral and live off of the generosity of others. You're really only getting fed and getting a bed, maybe if like right. a nice person is like, here, come stay in my house for the night. So what... <laughs> One of the things I read was that apparently his main thing was he decided he was just going to wear this one shirt for like a year, which is so fucking gross. It's beyond disgusting. So that shirt was white when it started. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> or it's black. It just hides the dirt, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know why you think, I don't know why you think God would show up if you smelled like shit, but whatever. <laughs> but I feel like with all these religious extremists, which you know, the word is loaded, there's no end to it, right? Like if I want to be yes. godly, it's like, well, of course, you know, Moses, I have to didn't, suffer greatly. Moses didn't have a shirt, right? I have to like, <laughs> I have to give up all this stuff. Now, is his family on pause at this point? What's the deal? Oh, he abandoned them to go do oh. this. <laughs> Bye, Sonia. See you later. <laughs> Mar Maricha, you're out. <laughs> You're gone. You're burned. So he's finding, he's finding his, 
his uh, footing as a religious individual, but he's definitely like a terrible husband and father, which, by the way, doesn't change throughout his entire mm. life in terms of his like commitment to his family because mm. he does this on and off for years. It's not like he goes out like, okay. you know, eat, pray, love style, <laughs> do a little tour around and then come right back. And he's changed magically forever. In fact, they even felt like he was worse a worse person in some ways when he got back. <laughs> so less godly. Not less godly, but like less enjoyable to be around for okay. a period Not, of time. No, no longer a good time. It might have been because he gave up drinking and maybe he was just more fun when he was drunk. That I believe. That I believe. <laughs> Papa's medicine ran out and we found out that he's actually an asshole. By the early 1900s, Rasputin had actually developed a small circle of followers, primarily his family members, but other local peasants in Pokrovska, and they would pray with him on Sundays and on high holy days. And by the way, when I'm talking about religion, I am, of course, talking about Russian Orthodoxy. That is the main religion in Russia, and at times the only one allowed in Russia. And right. we'll, talk, the only, we'll talk about the only that in a second. The only game in town, really. Right, yeah. What it was reported about him was that he could quote the scripture perfectly it was also the way that he spoke with so much passion and fervor like almost like pentecostal vibes okay but he focused on the love of god which is like wonderful you know and how like we are horrible sinners and we have to find this love and god loves you god wants you to love yourself and just like really good messages ultimately god wants me to love you Against your will. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that comes up a bit. <laughs> Another thing that probably pissed off the wealthier people was he definitely believed in the goodness of being poor versus the idleness of being rich. And mm -hmm. that will definitely bite him in the ass later <laughs> as he moves up in uh, prestige and power. He also... Right. He accumulates some stuff himself, so take it easy, guy. <laughs> okay, yeah, practice what you preach, boo. Uh-huh. So he's running this show <laughs> out of his father's house, by the way, because he has no job. He's just a fucking religious peasant, so he doesn't like have any means. His poor right. wife and kids are just stuck in this house with his dad while he's preaching to basically just a bunch of women. And... Welcome to this service at Pa Poutine's house. Yes. But she was also all in, uh, whose name, by the way, Luke, is Praskovia, I think is how you would say that. So, yeah, he's living there with his three kids, his wife, in his dad's house, preaching to these women who are just so into him and everything he has to say. And, of course, because he's talking to women and what man would want to just hang out and talk to women who didn't want to obviously have sex with them. This begins a rumor that follows him for the rest of his life that he is a cleist. Luke, are you familiar with the cleisti? It's a cult, right? Yeah. So really what it is, it's a <laughs> sect of Russian Orthodoxy. They essentially mm -hmm. branched off and it is very cult-like. Some of the stuff that's been said about it, again, is like probably way more exaggerated and severe, like talking about like sacrifices and cutting off women's breasts and eating them like that probably isn't real. But they definitely were into uh, self-flagellation. So the mm -hmm. that sort of same notion of like punishing yourself and possibly to extremes and also 
it was rumored that many of their religious meetings ended with wild orgies. <laughs> sex, 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 sex. Yeah. So this kind of like loving dude who's hanging out with all these chicks, he is coming in and having these meetings. So it's fair to assume something mm. seems amiss. Here's my question to you. Yeah. I, what I've heard is that sometimes when the Clisty would get together, it, maybe there wouldn't necessarily be a ratio of women and men there. So mm -hmm. is there any is there any evidence of some male-on-male -male situations, or is that beyond the research? It's beyond the research that I did, but it literally, the descriptions that I did read were like, the religious expressions and yelling and and would reach this fever pitch where they'd all just collapse on the floor and have sex. <laughs> so I, it could have uh -huh. just been a free for all. I don't right. think there's and any reason. any any whole speaking in tongues. I think yeah. so. Yeah, and a lot of that too. Like it was mm -hmm. it was very much speaking in tongues and like I said, what you think of with like the Pentecostal church, right? Right. So, but like a sexy <laughs> Pentecostal church. <laughs> <laughs> Trading, um, trading those polyester suits for whips and... <laughs> oh, yeah. Way sexier. So there is literally zero evidence that he was a cleast. They oh. cannot prove it. No. What? Boring. No. I know. It's actually one of the things that I always thought was like pretty badass about him. But it's yeah. Not, it's not Extremely. True. Okay. Yeah. But this was such a pervasive rumor since mm. the very beginning of his religious life that it clings to him. I mean, you and I both thought that was true. So right. it's, it's nuts. And there's endless examples of this to come. So we're going to step away from him for a second because we do need to talk a little bit about the Russian empire at this time, this time being obviously the turn of the century. So this is a tremendous topic in and of itself. So I'm going to be extremely succinct here because my God, we do not have the time. We do not have time for the Lucy Worsley uh, recap of the Romanovs of three years. Jesus Christ. No, no, yeah. no. But basically, to summarize, you're talking about a vibe that's very similar to the Gilded Age <laughs> or France pre-revolution where there is extensive poverty and people living in ghettos alongside this tiny percentage of some of the wealthiest human beings that have ever walked the earth. The most decadent. Most decadent. I mean, I'm sure you've all heard of Fabergé eggs, which are the most decadent item I can think of off the top of mm -hmm. my head. Just this useless trinket that's just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, precisely. The, yeah. The, the, the tchotchke of all tchotchkes. The, the king of the tchotchkes. <laughs> Every grandma's greatest witch. <laughs> So this leads to a great deal of unrest to come, and that's mm -hmm. definitely minimizing what it actually is. But basically, before the turn of the century, Russia really is an autocracy. Uh, it's been controlled by the Romanov dynasty at that point for about 300 years. I think it started in 1613. But by the 1880s, some of that whiffs of uprising and discontentment, those voices had started to get louder. And the greatest example of this expression is Alexander II, who would have been uh, Tsar Nicholas II's grandfather, is assassinated in 1881. Right. Horribly. Horribly. Oh, yeah, he's blown up. So, he was a good guy from what I can glean. A better he guy. was more of a reformer. Right. He was trying to hear out the people. He was more interested in working with the Duma, which is the Russian parliament. 
but because his death is so atrocious, it really scares the shit out of his heir, yeah. uh, Alexander the Third, and he doubles down on the conservatism. He yeah. basically erases most of what his father had put in place. So it suddenly it really goes backwards in terms of it being a full on autocracy. Right. Right. And so he is not on the throne for terribly long. He actually dies at 49 from kidney disease in uh, 1894. So that's short. Sure. And so therefore his own children are still relatively young. That leads us to Nicholas II, poor, poor Nicky, <laughs> as he was affectionately known, who at Didn't the stand end, a chance. <laughs> oh, he is only 26. And allegedly- Baby. On his father's deathbed, he said to his cousin, basically, I'm not ready. <laughs> and more precisely, what is going to happen to me and all of Russia? <sighs> and the answer, Nikki, nothing good. <laughs> <laughs> what, not at all. No, that was the understatement of the century or many centuries, Nikki saying, I'm not ready. <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> they often will blame it on, oh, he wasn't prepared enough. It's not that. It was also his personality. He was a wimp at the end of the day. Right. More of like a team player than a team leader. Yeah. He was not really an ideas man and couldn't <laughs> couldn't execute very well without having a lot of people around him, pulling him one way or the other. So he really is just copying his father's reign because right. that's what he knew the best. Right. So he continues on with the autocracy, but unlike his dad who was very much of his own mind and quite an imposing figure and and pretty scary from what I've read as well, Nikki was passive, indecisive. He mm -hmm. needed his hand to be held constantly. Right. And he had bad instincts. Mm -hmm. But without question his worst trait was that he was so insanely out of touch with the Russian people. He just had no idea how unloved the monarchy really was. Right. And of course, then how much it would deteriorate because of his him just being naive to that fact. Sure. You, a lot of people were monarchists. A lot of people still supported it at this point, but so many were quite over it, especially since it had become so you know, autocratic again, they, they certainly, most people did not want that. And he was just so deaf to that, right. that it's, it's quite insane. But this is a pretty typical issue with a monarchy yeah. or really any government where the leader is someone who has never known the struggles of being middle-class or poor, right? Right. And this is like when you're at the heyday of like the International Club of Monarchs, when every, all the crowned heads of Europe are related to each other. Which... We'll talk about that too. But yes, that's a great point. So it's this, yeah, there's no reason. And that's very insular, right? And you think, oh, all my cousins, all my cousins got to figure it out, right? But to compare the United Kingdom with Russia, the, the Russian czars were more like emperors. They, they were, were. They were powerful, like you say, autocratic figures. Whereas a lot of these other monarchies, if they're about to go bye-bye, if they, if they survive, they're more democratic, they're yeah. more constitutional. And Russia is showing no signs of this at all at this time. Yeah, they've like I said, they've regressed. Yeah. They were moving in that direction. And honestly, that probably would have saved the dynasty mm. had they continued to progress. That's me making a bold statement. <laughs> oh, I'm already ready to cry over them. <laughs> me, a non-Russian uh, history expert, deciding that that's what would have happened. Uh, anyway. But this is one of the great moments of the 20th century that 
that is so formative and Absolutely. it does affect it does affect us in terms of the cold war and all of that oh my and, god and the, it's this these couple of years man they set the tone for a lot of geopolitics it's wild it's wild the effect that the russian revolution has on the world it's true now it's true let alone then so it's true so much to talk about there that we don't have time for but we okay. are going to dip our toes in here and there but yeah so like I was saying, this is something that where you live in this bubble, you are going to be an incredibly ineffectual leader who really lacks empathy for your own people. But And I'm so glad we've never experienced that in this country, right? <laughs> oh, that's sad. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, God, I'm in heaven. You're right, the ruling class, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard out there, man. At any rate, he believed the people truly loved him was like obsessed with this notion that these are my children, right? He had, this, it was a very paternal relationship that the czars felt they had with their people and this disillusioned belief that God has made me their father, right? Of the hugest country ever. Right. <laughs> so really easy also to connect with your people. <laughs> right. Such a diverse landscape. Right. And he would continue to pretty much think that ultimately the people would always be with him pretty much until he's like murdered. <laughs> Your grandfather was murdered. Like, do you think you're going to get scot-free? Yeah. But one of Nikki's downfalls is his counterpart in all of this, his wife, Alexandra, who is affectionately known as Alex, mm -hmm. A-L-I-X. She is German born, which will prove to be a humongous problem later on. <laughs> Those German princesses gotta watch out. Another problem, they are cousins. Yay! <laughs> genetics, genetics, don't do that. Genetics. <laughs> uh, always a good idea. The one thing about them, which I think is one of the things that, as horrible as they were in many respects, does endear them to people, is that they really loved each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fairly rare among monarchs, but especially in this time period, just relationships in general still were often like people were kind of flung together. And especially right. amongst monarchs, it was usually a power play of some kind. Like you need to marry the princess of Russia because she's going to then get this and that and whatever. So this wasn't really as strategic as a relationship. There were certainly benefits uh, at the time, but for her, there were kind of less benefits in some way because her family was very worried about a German moving to Russia and then being like, it's not safe there for you. No, I don't you're, feel like you're, this is going to go well. You're so far away and yeah. it's a very tumultuous country. Yeah, they were scared yet, early on. But you're right but, also that there were these real love matches that come out of these arranged situations. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It really is. And, and you know, some really beautiful ones. And theirs is, I mean, if you've never have read their letters to each other, they're like nauseatingly cute. They're adorable. <laughs> she calls him lovey. He calls her sunny. It's That's really, so it's almost too much. <laughs> I love that. That's one of the things I think that that also makes them fascinating is in some ways they were just people, you know? Right. They just both happen to be descended from Queen Victoria, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Everyone was descended from Queen Victoria. <laughs> She had 42 fucking grandkids. <laughs> you know, Alex, whereas Nikki, we've discussed, is very passive and mm. needs a lot of guidance and not a great decision maker. Alex 
she wore the pants in this relationship for sure. And frankly, I, in one of the books I read, one of her relatives said they didn't think the love match would work because they felt like Alex needed someone to call the shots for her because she had bad judgment. <laughs> oh, no. And now she's the decision and here maker. we are. <laughs> oh, shit. She had some qualities that are not exactly ideal for a tsarina. She hated public life, for one. So that's not great. Oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? I know. Her number one priority was always keeping her family protected and private. And again, that's not what the people want. If you want them to love the monarchy, you have to get them engaged with the family. You have, have to, to show seen, them that you love them. You have to be seen to be believed. Exactly. Otherwise, you're just these very well-kept rich people Expensive. who don't give a shit about us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That all of our money goes to. For mm -hmm. what? And, and it doesn't help, of course, that she's German. So it's like, oh, she's just this uptight German lady who doesn't care about Russia at all. Who the hell even is she? Right. F outsider. Yeah. She is also a hypochondria and suffers from horrible moods and every ailment you can imagine. Apparently, she went through periods where she was rolling around in the palace in a wheelchair on all kinds of drugs, cocaine and everything. Everything. Oh, what a pain imagine. in the ass. Oh, yeah, no. She a was royal suffering. pain in the ass. Ha, ha, ha. Good one. She also apparently suffered from fits of hysteria, but I feel like that's the blanket diagnosis for all women <laughs> at the turn of the century. Yeah, any so woman having a mood is. is hysterical. Yeah. Right, exactly. Having feelings and talking out loud. Correct. She's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah, you're menstruating. You're hysterical. So her contribution to the family is that she had four baby girls. Uh, there was Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia. The only one and that matters. What'd you say? The only one that matters. <laughs> the only one that matters, Anastasia. Uh, and then finally, in 1904, their long-awaited heir, their boy, because of course it needs to be a boy, because fucking patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's male line primogeniture, big time. I can't, I can't. Anyway, Alexei, which is such a beautiful name. Sweet kid. He apparently was a little bit of a terrorist, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiled uh, brat. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, I think actually, I read that uh, Nicholas would call him Alexei the Terrible. <laughs> Well, he's the little Zarevich. She gets whatever he, he wants. Well, that's the thing. And he knows it, too. Yeah. And he also gets everything he wants because of what I'm going to explain next. He is born, and they are so relieved, especially Alex, because up until this point, it's like, what the fuck is she for? So now she's had a boy. She has a boy. Well, and of course, it's her fault because society was not a oh, of course. to biology. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But very soon, they realize that their joy and happiness was going to be cut quite short. After his uh, umbilical cord is cut, he begins bleeding profusely. And that bleed continues for 48 hours, and they recognize immediately that this is hemophilia. Even then, it was actually well known as a genetic disorder, and they frequently would tell people they should not marry and have children if they have hemophilia. Right, and Queen Victoria was a carrier. Absolutely. <laughs> and therefore, so was Alex. Alex mm -hmm. inherited it from her so that obviously also puts alex in a bad place it's scary it's very scary this moment the future it, of this dynasty is riding on this fragile kid and they honestly you know they get judged a lot for what they do next but they didn't have any good choices no no but the choice that they make is if the public knows about this it's going to give them another reason to hate her 
and it's going to show weakness in the family at a time when the authority of the Tsar was already coming into question. 1905 is around the corner when we know this is the initial revolution and the initial sort of the Tsar having to walk back some of the autocracy and bring back the Duma. And so they weren't wrong in their fear that Russia was starting to fall away from them. Yes. So they felt like they had to keep this a secret. And this is just an enormous part of their downfall. And it also is how our boy Rasputin comes into their lives. So let's get back to our man, the man at hand. Nikki and Alex were actually incredibly spiritual. Mm. You know, the traditionally the czar would have connections with Russian Orthodoxy in the church. And so it was crucial that she convert. So she became yeah. a Russian Orthodox when she married Nikki. Along with their religious beliefs, it also is a time period of spiritualism, which we owe a whole other episode on spiritualism because I am obsessed. <laughs> spiritualism, of course, being this religion that sort of gained popularity. I think it started around like the 1840s and really took off well into the 20s, mm -hmm. where essentially there was just this deep belief in connecting to the afterlife, being able to speak to spirits, people having mystical powers, mediums, the occult, all that stuff really became right. quite popular, especially with the upper classes. Right. It fills York. in the gaps of like religion in mm -hmm. terms of death and communication with the, the dead. Absolutely. You know, a lot of wish fulfillment dealing exactly. with because how horrible life was. Yeah, because it sucks. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, as a result, having a spiritual advisor wouldn't be considered taboo at the time. And the Romanovs certainly believed in their abilities to both prophesize and heal. And they had relied on them in the past. At this point, uh, Rasputin has been on many pilgrimages. Like I said before, <laughs> he really didn't hang at home very often. Uh, he eventually <laughs> finds himself in St. Petersburg, also known simply as Petersburg, which I didn't realize that it was also just casually Petersburg, Pete's, just Peteburg. <laughs> Drop the saint. Say so saint. Yeah. Which, of course, is the capital of the Russian Empire. By this point, he's considered a starets, or starets, I think, which is basically he's a holy man, despite the fact that he has zero theological training. He is not actually a monk or anything. He's just like out there living his best life talking about Jesus. Right. He never joined an order, right? No, no. He's just mm. some poor kid who walked around and smelled bad. <laughs> Basically, like throws equivalent of like throwing on a collar and being like, "I'm a, I'm a preacher." Yeah, I mean, he didn't, he didn't try to pretend he was a priest. He was sort of referred to as a holy man, right. or like, or like I, right, 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 right. So, um, the mad monk nickname was stupid, but anyway, <laughs> that was an enemy that called him that. He immediately, once in Saint Petersburg, becomes known because he's such a personality. He's so charismatic. He befriends some of the most powerful people in the church in Russia, including a man named Theophan, and he is an archimandrite. I definitely would you call it, me. I don't know. I think it's like some kind of an archbishop. I don't know. He's a cultural attache. A powerful, yeah, to Greece. He's a powerful figure in the church. That's all you need to know. He's the inspector of the theological seminary, well connected in St. Petersburg. And uh, he was also sometimes the confessor to the czar and his wife. So, dude is connected. That's all you really oh, wow. need to know about him. Okay. Yeah. So, he feels that Rasputin is quite legit. He had recommendation letters and everything. People 
were buying what he was selling at this point. So this is around 1904, and he's referred to as the burning torch by these people because he speaks with so much passion. This dude, Theophan, is so into him that he actually lets him stay in his home and begins to bring him around to all these rich people parties, these salons, if you will, where mm -hmm. he meets the aristocracy. And like I said, they're all into this spiritualism and occultism, and they are obsessed with him. <laughs> the sensation of the salons, Rasputin. Yeah, and, and it's not just because he's, you know, clearly this cool spiritual leader, but he's a peasant and they've never seen a Siberian wild man before. So he's like mm. this novelty to them mm. as well. And that I think that adds to sort of his mystique and what makes him so alluring to these people is he's just seems so like he's just so in touch with the world, man. Like he just gets it. <laughs> That is you know, so interesting. Like Manson vibes, right? Very much. Jeez. Right? Yeah. And people actually often say he must have had some ability to hypnotize or entrance or whatever. And that's not really, there's no way to know that. But I mean, that was also popular at the time. So I'm sure many people believed he was capable of that. Uh, Super charismatic. Incredibly so. Which is crazy when you look at him. <laughs> Defies logic. It does. Defies it does. logic. He was exciting and intriguing. And this stinky guy, <laughs> what he did better than anyone else, like I said, is he really listened when you talked to him. And as a woman in the early 1900s, I mean, even as a woman today, we just want you to fucking listen, guys. That's all we really want. <laughs> He gave them undivided attention. Mm -hmm. They said something. He said something back. He gave hardcore eye contact. He cared about your feelings, your problems, and what you had to say. So what if you just had a boring day? He is here for it, and he wants to know. He makes me feel special, like I mattered. He did. And so many of these women were in these loveless bullshit marriages with husbands mm. that cheated on them like crazy. They were contracts. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this man made them feel something. And he also was very affectionate. <laughs> he touched women a lot. And it could be as simple as touching your hand or touching your arm. But there are many accounts of him touching women's thighs and mm. butt and just like moving his hands. He just had crazy hands, man. He was just one of those touchy feely types. <laughs> and either you were in or you were out. <laughs> That's what it was. He touched him in many ways and uh, <laughs> most definitely uh, fucked him. <laughs> oh my God. But for them, but you know, there was, a, I guess there was a lot of sexual aggression but there was also a lot of consensual desire, not forgiving any of it, of course. No, but... this is where it's really tricky. And I think in mm -hmm. this new sort of Me Too world that we're living sure. in, you know, I've read a lot of these books and, and accounts, and most of these things are written by men. So mm -hmm. they, there is a level of sort of insensitivity around the discussion of his sexual relationships and the way that he touched women or even potentially assaulted women, where they their instinct is to not believe it. Mm-hmm. And that's shaky ground to stand on. It is. But he had a reputation for being gropey. Right. I'm sure he groped someone that didn't want to be groped. And there were accounts from women who said, like, this one woman 
said he dragged me into a bedroom and was trying to initiate sex. And I said, no. And that's when he stopped. And so one author literally used that as, a, as an excuse to say, so see, he probably never raped anyone because he, he, if he, you said no, he would stop. And it's mm. like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't have even gotten that fucking far. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of, I don't know. It's like, murky. Yeah, it's murky. And there's a lot of forgiveness of him being yeah. gross. Right. And this is in no means a way of forgiving it. But w- what we know of life 50, 100 years ago is that women unfortunately dealt with this all the frequently, time frequently frequently yeah. and it was usually uh, by their own spouses right their own spouse a relative you know yeah. it's like you're being betrothed to some lovely man and then the father-in-law steps in the room jesus christ like yeah and it was it was accepted by women not because it was accepted by them personally but because society had ratified it as this is par for the course yeah and he did something that is one of the more uh, disgusting things that I think people have become more aware of in recent years. He was coercive. Mm. So he would say things like, you know, I want to help you. Mm-hmm. I want to heal you. Mm-hmm. But the only way I can do that is I have to touch you. Like I need to physically feel you. This is how I connect to people. Mm-hmm. So whether that meant that he, you know, I don't know if that meant he then had sex with this person, but probably at least let him touch him and this is how a lot of like sex cult guru people get where they get because it's like he's offering me this opportunity to feel seen and loved and connect me to Jesus which is what I want more than anything and if he has to you know stick his hand up my skirt to get me there okay I guess mm-hmm. I'll just kind of deal with it so it's coercion at minimum <laughs> mm-hmm. and in its worst rape so I don't think he didn't. There's do no it. good. There's no good side to it. No. Period.com. No. And yeah, there are lots of women who willingly had sex with him. He also loved going to prostitutes. So he he liked sex. Husband of the year, you guys. <laughs> Abandoned <laughs> his wife and kids and had sex with everyone. The dirty, stinkiest D. So stinky. He's stinky Oof. in so many ways. <laughs> so. Canceled. Canceled in 1907. Despite this sexy reputation, his reputation as a holy man and a healer is what really circulates throughout these salons. And he ultimately is referred to the Tsar and the Tsarina. Some dispute over when exactly they first met, but it was probably around 1907. So this is not very long after Alexei, Alexei, sorry, I never say it right the first time, (laughs) his first time. We we are disputing, okay? That's that's what's happening. I hate hate that. Um, (laughs) He was summoned to pray over him because he was having an episode with his hemophilia. He was having some internal bleeding and he was really suffering. And I don't think I mentioned this before, but if you don't know anything about hemophilia, it is not just like, oh, I have a paper cut and it won't stop bleeding. When you have it severely like he did, you suffer from constant internal injuries and internal right. bleeding that is profoundly mind-numbingly painful. Like right. this like- poor baby was in constant screaming, crying pain. It is misery. Yeah, like a bruise could really do damage. Right. Seriously. And it's important to know that because you have to really understand what this did to this poor kid's parents having to witness him go through this. It would destroy me to see my child suffering that way. So, you know, they hear about this holy man, they ask him to come and pray over him, and the next day he was fine. Magic. Yeah, and so this really sort of kicks off 
their dependency on him. And so one of the most incredible examples of his quote unquote healing mm -hmm. is uh, Alexei had a horrible fall in about 1912. He fell off a carriage and he is hurt and in complete agony. It's to the point where he has actually administered his last rites. That's the kind of shape he's in. They're Ooh, all convinced he's not going to live. And Rasputin was away at the time, but Alex reaches out to him, telling him what's going on. And he sends her back a telegram that reads, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Within two days, he was completely fine. How? One of the physicians who attended Alexei said that the recovery was wholly inexplicable from a medical point of view. So we don't really know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and he said on other occasions, Rasputin would come in, walk up to the patient, look at him, spit. The bleeding would stop in no time. How could the Empress not trust Rasputin after that? Mm -hmm. I mean, really. The magic ingredient here. To see your baby in that incident also, it's it's reported that little Alexei was even saying to his mama, mama, when I die, will the pain stop? Like, that's how bad this fucking was. So I, I really can't blame her for being like, holy shit, this guy is Jesus. <laughs> yeah, homeopathic, new, new age medicine, whatever it takes. Let's deliver this kid from this disease. Let's secure yeah. the dynasty. How, so, what a stressful thing for them to deal oh, with. Oh, terrible, yeah. Um, in addition to, like, the monarchy is starting to fall apart. Some of the scientific reasons that this could have worked yeah. is uh, the doctors for his pain had been giving him aspirin. And in case you didn't know, that's actually an anti-clotting medicine. So it would have been making the bleeding go on and on and on. Right, anticoagulant. Right. So in addition to that, they were also probably messing with the hematoma and poking and prodding him and making things worse. So when he said, tell the doctors not to bother him too much, that was really good advice because they mm -hmm. stopped giving him the aspirin mm -hmm. and they left him alone. So that could have been it. Another prevailing theory is that it calmed him down and it calmed the parents down. Mm -hmm. And therefore that gave the body time to kind of relax and that right. helped in the process of helping him get over the the hump of right. like, this particular like his, instance. Like his nervous system. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and honestly, after like having all of that intense feeling and fear and everything, he's probably just exhausted. So he probably slept. Yeah. And that gave his body some time to recover as well. Um, and those are really the only things people have ever really been able to come up with other than the amazing historian in this terrible documentary that I watched that was full of every incorrect fact I've ever heard about Rasputin. And he said, as a historian, I can only come to one conclusion. Yes, he did have magical healing powers. And I'm like, you're a historian? Just like my mentor, Billy Graham. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Fuck off. Faker. Um, and the thing to remember is Rasputin didn't heal him. It's not like no. then he wasn't a hemophiliac anymore. He he just had a presence. His presence made the boy stay alive. So as long as Rasputin was alive, the feeling was this boy will stay alive. And if yeah. we keep him close by, maybe he won't have any accidents at all. And right. so that is why he became a staple in their lives and was frequently at the palace. And 
they loved him. They adored him. He's part they of really the court now, yeah. Yeah, and so, of course, almost immediately, people are confused as fuck. <laughs> like, who is this poor, stinky dude? Why the fuck is he here? And no one outside of the family knows the reason. Mm. That, it's, that it's the illness, that he's there to protect the future czar. Mm-hmm. And there's no way they can let them know how crucial he has become, as well as not just to the family, but to the future of Russia. Right. If, did, they, yeah. did they offer a cover story like he was a spiritual advisor or they just didn't address yeah, it? Yeah, and that wasn't a cover story. That was the truth. Yeah. He was their spiritual advisor. But it just seemed excessive. Not just his presence was excessive, his access to the family was excessive. He and that was raised just, his eyebrows. Like, yeah. Who's, because who's it's poisoning like, this family? Right. Why are you always here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because we're we're kind of entering into the rumors section <laughs> hardcore now. They clearly had this affectionate relationship with him. He called Nicholas Papa because he thought of them as the mother and father of the country. They called him obviously Father Gregory, but often in many of the letters they wrote to him, he's just called our friend or they refer to him as our friend. Alex would even refer to him as teacher. And so there's this real- That speaks volumes. Yeah, really strong relationship that they have pet names at this point. And Mm. the children thought of him as like an uncle. They sometimes refer to him as Uncle Gregory. Mm. Um, But no one on the outside- understood the why of course so this just looks fucking weird they think that there's this lecherous peasant has somehow gotten all of this access to the most powerful people in russia and so stories naturally start to build because they're not being given information Mm -hmm. so here are some of the best one he is a cleast as we already discussed this rumor (laughs) follows him two he's having sex with all of his followers often several at once. (laughs) Again, not verifiable in either direction, but probably definitely not all of them. Three, he has raped many women. Again, not totally verifiable, probably likely to some extent. He frequents prostitutes and has an unquenchable lust. That one I'm going to give them. (laughs) That one was true. That one was true. Um, He is a horrible drunk. Also, I'm going to give them that one. He is actually a dark and evil wizard, a la the movie Anastasia. People really Great. thought he was just this evil, dark, demonic presence. Right. And yeah, and that he was this, had these wizard powers where he could keep everybody in a trance and bend them to his will. Mm. Uh, a sorcerer, if you will. And the worst and most constant rumor, and is often believed to this very fucking day, is that he was having an affair with Alexandra. And Mm-mm-mm. I don't know if they'll ever be able to fully shake that one because there are people who genuinely believe that they did to this day. It's crazy. Wow. And there's no real proof. The The best proof that ever existed really was the rumor really exploded into full gear when a correspondence between the two of them was leaked to the press. And by now, again, this is like post-1905, so the press has freedom to print whatever they want, including mm. horrifying cartoons depicting sex acts between the two of them it's crazy actually what they were printing i'll post some of the cartoons they're disgusting dark (laughs) but they also posted these private letters between rasputin and alex that an enemy of his had gotten his hands on someone that he didn't know was his enemy at the time another quote-unquote holy man by the name of uh, iliador who turned out to be a maniac person (laughs) but anyway 
Oh my god, I saw this cartoon of Rasputin grabbing Alex's booby. It's so oh. bad. That's a nice one. They get way worse. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'll read you the famous excerpt from the letter that yes. really got them in trouble. She writes to him, How weary I am without you. I only rest my soul when you, the teacher, are sitting next to me, and I kiss your hands and lean my head on your blissful shoulders. Oh, how easy it is for me then. Then I wish all the time to sleep, to sleep forever on your shoulders in your arms. What kind of rate my professor DM is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> so many chili peppers. Woo! <laughs> that is tender. That now, is if you. So loving. It's so loving. And you would really need to read the letters that she writes to Nicholas versus the letter she mm -hmm. writes to him to understand that they are so different. Yes. The love that she has for Nicholas is truly romantic and, and beautiful and loving. This is like she's passionate about this man because he's saving her and her family's lives. Right. So and it is can, love. It is. You can have love for him that's not sexual. She absolutely. absolutely have that. Yeah. But this fucking secrecy, with the secrecy and his constant presence combined with these words, it just doesn't look good for them. Right. People see what they want to see and people fill in the blanks. And even then, they don't come clean. Right. All they say is, no, that's not happening. And it's like, okay, of course you would fucking say that. Right. And listen, is there any way this was happening? We'll never know, really. But it's just highly unlikely, given everything that we know about her relationship with Nicholas and how much they adored each other. And Rasputin didn't really have much to offer her outside of helping the family. And why would he jeopardize having this powerful position right. by screwing around with the czar's wife. It just doesn't a, make sense. There's a lot of stakes for both of them. A lot yeah, of stakes. A yeah, lot at stake for both of them. And and it doesn't seem like they would they had a good thing going without having yeah. to complicate it with sexy stuff. Yeah, no. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you actually know the extent of the story. The rumors continue to escalate to one where some of them are so bad, they accuse him of having sex with one of the daughters, I think Olga, and that Alexei was their bastard child. Oh, no. It's crazy shit that doesn't even make sense. They didn't even really know Rasputin when right. he was born. The supermarket tabloids look like the wheel. Play. Yes, the <laughs> wheels are just fucking spinning out of yeah. control. Because they're also looking for reasons to be mad at the Romanovs. Right. They want to assassinate them, you know, culturally mm -hmm. <laughs> in, the, in the minds of the public before they take them out <laughs> right and so there's and it's two-sided because mm. this is where it's really fucked up you have the people who genuinely hate the romanovs who are like look at these immoral pieces of shit and then you have the people who actually are trying to uphold the romanovs being like we have to make this guy look as bad as fucking possible so they kick him out and he's no longer an issue because i think he's making nicholas and alex into his slaves and they're doing right. they're doing whatever he wants Right, Some like of them really believe offense. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And all they do is deny everything mm -hmm. and not care. And specifically, Nikki is often approached by his ministers saying, like, something has to be done. And his answer basically is, he says something, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, I would rather have 10 Rasputins than deal with one of her outbursts. Oh, shit. Because okay. she's tough to handle, man. And he right. and Rasputin is, I don't even think he would have cared if they'd been having sex because he was keeping her ass in check. <laughs>
But like the personal <laughs> lives of a monarch in this time are off limits. No one's talking about that. No one's commenting on anything. And that was her perspective. Was this is a this is family mm-hmm. matters. This is family business. It's not their fucking business. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't sit well with everyone outside that palace. And mm-hmm. it was pretty stupid that they kept him around at that point. But right. what else could they do if they really believed that he was the one who was keeping their kid alive? Yeah. They're stuck between this rock and hard place. And I, I just I just don't know. So he made them appear at minimum like fools or at most that possibly hypnotized by an evil wizard or in league with the goddamn devil himself. Right. There are people who really believed he was like, Satan or the Antichrist. Corrupting the seat of power. And yeah. So they, they could have kicked him out or they could have made him less visible in terms of the court or how. Yeah. They've had him take breaks. They would uh, like be like, you should go home for a little while. <laughs> Time to go for a pilgrimage. Go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. And he's like, ugh, <laughs> to my wife and kids. Fine. Actually, he one time, he she was like, didn't you always want to go to Jerusalem? Why don't you go to Jerusalem for a while? <laughs> And he does. Poutine, <laughs> why don't you go to the Holy Land? <laughs> Have fun. Enjoy yourself. It's a <laughs> lovely climate. Mommy needs a break. One of my favorite quotes that she ever said to Nicholas in a letter in regards to her just pushing all of this gossip aside. She says to Nikki, they hate him because we love him. Which is Ooh. true. Mm-hmm. That all Mm -hmm. of this is because he's close to them. And there was probably a lot of jealousy, too. He seemed to be having influence. And he had this ability to be close to them and know things about them that people significantly more powerful and wealthy than this fucking peasant. It pissed a lot of people off. Right. Like, it would piss off the gentry more than the the serfs and the lowly people right because yeah. he had taken a she taken a shortcut and he has an outsized influence he's not educated questionable he's demonic but what they love about him also is that unlike a lot of these other people he is fucking team czar all the way he's like yes monarchy yes Monar- monarchy all day through through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah he said god is with you you are the father of this country and we will protect you at any and all costs And that is exactly the echo chamber that Nikki wants because he doesn't Mm -hmm. understand that this one peasant does not speak for them all. (laughs) Right. He's giving him what he thinks is good intelligence from the ground. Mm -hmm. This is what the people want. And it's like, this is not your typical representative. No. You knew. So this proximity to them also really, I've kind of alluded to it, but it gives people this notion that he has incredible influence over them. And that at some point he even, it seems as if he's the one running Russia. That is an extreme exaggeration that a lot of people make. And it's it's just not true. You know, he writes many letters to Nicholas. And while he could more often than not easily influence Alex, you'll find when you read his letters to Nikki, Nikki's always shooting him down. He mm. doesn't want to follow his advice. He doesn't want to do what he said. Now, if Alex is the one who gives him the advice like via Rasputin, sometimes he's more inclined to listen, but more often than not, he he's he's just not listening. Um, one like, of the best. Go to, exa- go to mommy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he tried. One of the best examples of this is in his extremely intense and 
highly prophetic letter that he writes to Nikki. It's now known as the Menacing Cloud letter, which survives and I believe lives weirdly at the Yale Library. Oh, don't know how they got that. That is worth looking into to see. At the Beinecke. Yeah, I know. I have no idea how they, how they got their mitts on it. He wrote it in the summer of 1914, which of course is a little, it's a little tense in Europe. Chilly. <laughs> if you recall. <laughs> World War One heating up. Oh, sure. Uh, maybe you heard about a gentleman by the name of Franz Ferdinand. He the was Archduke. Just, yeah, he was just shot. And so, ironically, Rasputin had actually just been attacked. It was his first real attempt on his life. A a Mm. woman who allegedly was just an insane person attacked him with a knife uh, close to his home and yelled that he was the Antichrist. So he's recovering on his bed when he finds out about Franz Ferdinand's death. And he's like, holy shit, I got to talk to the emperor right away. And so he writes him this letter. Dear friend. I'll say again, a menacing cloud is over Russia. Lots of sorrow and grief. It's dark and there's not a ray of hope. A sea of tears, immeasurable. And as to blood, what can I say? There are no words. Indescribable horror. I know they all want war from you. Evidently not realizing that this means ruin. Hard is God's punishment when he takes away reason. It's the beginning of the end. You are the czar. Father of the people, don't allow the madmen to triumph and destroy themselves and the people. Yes, they'll conquer Germany, but what of Russia? If one thinks, then truly never for all of time has one suffered like Russia, drowned in her own blood. Great will be the ruin, grief without end. Grigori. Beautifully written. Yipes. (laughs) Scary as hell. Yeah, because like, accurate. A grim portent. Yes. It's a good argument for his ability as a potential prophet because he's not wrong. No. Does Nikki heed his advice? Well, this was one of 20 telegrams he sent Nikki from his wow. bed that summer. And I that's guess. why he's saying yet again at the beginning of the letter. And uh, as we well know, Nikki does not. Mm-hmm. Hate his advice. And Rasputin's motivation for this was largely because as a holy man, he followed the teachings of Jesus and therefore was anti-war. He didn't believe in violent conflicts. And he also, as a peasant, understood that this would be the annihilation of peasants, mostly, mm-hmm. that they would be the ones to suffer. So, of course, he wasn't going to be on board with this. And he really did love Russia. He loved his country and he was scared and he completely supported the monarchy but he just did not want to support this war. Right. But obviously, Tsar doesn't listen, and they declare war on Germany and Austria-Hungary, thus kicking off World War I. Hooray! And uh, World War I plays an incredibly large role in really just taking the Romanovs out because he is responsible ultimately for the loss of 1.7 million people, whether from disease or being killed in action, Mm -hmm. in addition to 2.5 million reported missing or imprisoned and 5 million wounded. They only sent 12 million soldiers. Those numbers are nuts. That's a lot of humanity. That's a lot of humanity. And a lot of the portion of humanity that is tired of being treated like shit. Right. That are 
denied everything. Yeah. So that's not going to go well for them. This all happens because of Nikki's overconfidence and believing yeah. that he was this brilliant military leader and strategist and he didn't know shit. He was not. No. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> Nikki didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> One of the dumbest things he probably did is, uh, Luke, do you remember what Nikki decides he's going to do? His amazing idea during the war? What's his idea? He's going to lead the army. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, wah, wah. Yep. He's like, yep. No, this feels right. This is where I should be right now. And so right. he's like, hey, Alex, babe, you got this? All right, I'll be back. And he leaves her in charge with, of course... Rasputin by her side. Mm -hmm. That's right. The unpopular, unfriendly, secretive German woman, German woman from the country they just declared war on. Right. Well, the the Kaiser is is Nikki's cousin, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So what's the big deal? So she's going to be in charge with her weird, probably the devil BFF Rasputin right mm. next to her. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, people handled this really well. Right. The sex rumors <laughs> went away immediately. No. <laughs> yeah, and. And frankly, to put it mildly, it was a hot fucking mess. Mm -hmm. Neither one of these maniacs knew what they were doing. And they spent most of their time fending off rumors and firing every minister that Rasputin perceived as even a potential threat to his safety. He's, he'd gotten very paranoid by this point, mm. uh, especially since people were trying to kill him actively at this point. So, and, and she, of course, is scared for him. So she'll go along with whatever he wants. So he's putting buddies in powerful positions they are becoming the ministers and so of course from the outside people are like what the fuck is happening mm -hmm. <laughs> it looks like he's just running the show that he's in control of her and she's in control of nikki and this just is what it is there are even conspiracies that they convinced nikki to go to the war front so they could do this mm. now that doesn't really hold water simply because they really didn't want him to leave because they were actually worried he was going to get influenced <laughs> by people out there right. rather than listen to the two of them. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's a fucking mess. And so he really does have a lot of power ultimately. And he enjoyed the prestige and I'm sure he loved having a say in his country, what peasant ever has a say in their country? <laughs> it's crazy, right? When you think about it like that. By now, there were so many plots to murder this guy. <laughs> <laughs> from that semi-successful one where the lady stabbed him. And he suffered from that tremendously for a long time. To There was another attempt where uh, it was, I forget if it was food or drink but the cat got it and the cat died and they realized oh they were trying to murder me right um, like the monkey and indiana jones bad dates exactly exactly <laughs> uh but a real viable plan comes into place by prince felix yusupov who is a member mm. of uh one of the most wealthy and influential families in russia he along with grand duke dmitry pavlovich and vladimir Porishkevich. I'm pretty sure is how you say that. <laughs> Good enough for me. Yeah. They believe that Rasputin has to die to save the monarchy. So they are not the people who are blaming him necessarily for everything that's gone wrong in the world, but they understand that he's making the monarch look bad and it has to stop. 
So they come up with this plan. Now, the most prevailing account of the murder, this is where, my friends, the story gets truly, truly nutty. I'm so <laughs> excited. Because the prevailing account of the murder is what was reported by Yusupov himself to the, to the police and ultimately what he wrote in a memoir in 1927, so also long after the murder. So I'll summarize his telling of the events. On December 17th, 1916, around midnight, Rasputin arrives at Prince Yusupov's house, the Moika Palace. The others are upstairs waiting. Rasputin was there under the pretense that he would be helping counsel Yusupov on a personal matter. Mm. Yusupov claims he offered Rasputin tea and cakes and Madeira wine, which had been laced with cyanide. According to him, Rasputin initially refused the cakes, but then began to eat them with no effect. The poison <laughs> wasn't working. He then drank three glasses of Madeira. Three glasses of Madeira. I'm on my ass, but apparently this guy <laughs> seems mostly fine. Because <laughs> he's also a drunk. Couple shots of cyanide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At around 2.30 a.m., Yusupov excuses himself to go upstairs where he takes a revolver from Dmitry Pavlovich. By the way, I always picture this in my mind. is like, it's not working. Nothing's working. What am I going to do? Give me the gun. Shut up. Shut up. Just give me the gun. Shut up. Let's go. So he goes back to the basement where he finds Rasputin pretty much just fucking chilling. Um, and there's a crucifix on in the room and he says, Grigory Yefemovich Rasputin, you better look at that crucifix and say a prayer. He literally did the say your prayers, wabbit. <laughs> it's the last thing you'll ever say, Rasputin. Yeah. Then he shoots him in the chest once. <laughs> Everyone runs down. They see him and they're like, oh, shit, you did it, bro. And so they all then drive to his apartment, Rasputin's apartment. I love this part of the story. It's so <laughs> stupid. The conspirators drive to Rasputin's apartment with uh, one of the guys wearing Rasputin's coat and hat to make it look as though Rasputin went home that night. Mm, Brilliant. Solid. Flawless plan. Yeah. Uh, they get back to the Moika Palace and go to the basement only to discover that Rasputin is not all the way dead, like Monty Python style, He's sort of <laughs> moving around a little bit. And then suddenly Rasputin leaps up and attacks <gasps> Yusupov, <laughs> who somehow frees himself. And with some effort, he flees upstairs. He's out the doors. He's in the snow. He's sort of limping away, trying to get away. And actually, I do want to read to you because it's amazing some of the actual words from his account. Mm. With a sudden violent effort, Rasputin leapt to his feet, foaming at the mouth. A wild roar echoed through the vaulted room. He rushed at me, trying to get at my throat, and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws. The, get ready. The devil who was dying on poison, who had a bullet in his heart, must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. I realize now who Rasputin really was. It was the reincarnation of Satan himself who held me in his clutches and would never let me go till my dying day. Yet, he did get out of his clutches somehow. <laughs> so, whatever. Rasputin runs outside into the snow and he is then shot by Kurishkovich two more times. He shot again in the chest, once in the head, blam, right in the forehead. In the skull. Yeah. yeah. He collapses. The conspirators then wrap his body in cloth 
drive to the Petrovsky Bridge and drop it in the Malaya Nevka River, I think. <laughs> Sounds good. Rasputin, at the rather young age of 47, has finally been killed. Ugh. Now, can you clear something up for me? All of it? <laughs> You want I to mean, right. all of it up. The, the superhuman surviving a shot in the chest, notwithstanding. I've heard this rumor about this little gay relationship or this gay sub theme with Yusupov oh. and oh, Rasputin. We get into it now. Okay, get ready. So there is a very good chance most of everything I just told you is complete, total, and utter bullshit. Mm -hmm. None of it happened. <laughs> And the reason why this is not a reliable account is because it was written by the fucking murderer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact this version of the account, the one I was just reading you, this very, you know, flowery, expressive version Graphic, of the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He wrote this in 1927. And even at some point in his memoir, he admits that this was a cowardly crime because he brought him there under false pretenses and he wanted to pray and speak with him and mm -hmm. counsel him. So why would he then embellish this story? Here's a few reasons. Sure. One, he wants to truly demonize a man he killed because he's a murderer now. <laughs> Just to justify his sins. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Two, to reinforce that it was a necessary evil, that it was a good thing that he did. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he's actually a hero. So he's also aggrandizing himself. Sure. And three, and probably the best reason, he was broke in 1927. <laughs> he was exiled along with the very lucky few members of the nobility who escaped the Russian Revolution. So this dude was making money off of this. Trying to spin his unfortunate story into gold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so why not make it super sexy rather than it be, you know, I shot this guy. I was fighting with the devil. <laughs> so you think th this is the origin of this like he will not die like myth is indestructible myth. Yes. This is where it starts. Yeah. All years later. Yeah, I know. All we know for sure. It actually started right away because he gave okay. the similar account to the cops. Okay. Night. But he pens it himself in this document. Okay. Yes. So he, what we do know for sure is that he was indeed shot three times, twice in the torso and the last one point blank range in his forehead. So he was straight up like assassinated at the end there. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely dead when he was dumped in the river. There are no signs of poisoning. Hmm. And what's really interesting that I hadn't read prior to this was his daughter, Maria, who's one of the only Re Rasputins that we really know anything about because she actually wrote her own memoir at some point. Oh, cool. She said, she's like, my dad didn't eat sweets. He hated sweets. Oh. He's like, this is nonsense. He definitely oh. didn't eat them. Right. So it's like I, I committed a cyanide murder that is somehow palatable, but then it devolved into this and he just wouldn't die when it was likely he was probably assassinated in a lot, a much more inglorious way. Well, I think also like something about the shooting is more cowardly. And so it's yes. like, well, I, I had to kill him at that point because clearly he's possessed by the fucking devil. Also, the Russians love poisoning. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, <laughs> you know, but they're still doing it like crazy. Yeah. Listen, it's, it's easy. Very common. It is. It's just so. It's ugh, not as messy. It. It's so scary. And it's terrible. Yeah. It it's is. how most female killers take out their uh, their loved ones. So watch your back, dude. Thanks. <laughs> Got it. Last time I saw Blanca at your house, bitch. <laughs> you don't want any of my Majira? Oh no, I brought my own. I'm good. <laughs> 
so uh what you were alluding to luke uh give me give me the gay shit oh yeah yeah yeah. i mean (laughs) of course immediately there are also 10 billion rumors that surround his death also he's he continues to be mysterious even in his death it's also because all of the conspirators start telling different stories. And mm. so it's actually, I believe it's Pyrishkevich. He's the one who's like, I mean, Wawaraha was. <laughs> they were hooking up. They were hooking up. <laughs> and they were like breaking up and he wasn't having it. So he had to take his ass out. Other versions are that Rasputin uncovered his sexual immorality his stain and so he had to kill him because of that okay um then there's versions where literally they tried to spin it completely and be like well Rasputin was at an, an orgy and shit just got crazy and he got killed <laughs> there was molly i don't it know was, what happened it was nuts it was like russian roulette like really like, like but like for real <laughs> oh my god and like yusupov is, is a landed guy he's such an unlikely assassin I know. Right? But is it because he is he does have stature that he is a, is able to ensnare Rasputin or they have their, their past history, oh, whether Rasputin it be platonic was, or romantic or whatever? No, Rasputin, according to his, his daughter and friends, was stoked to be going there because he loved hanging with the high society and being invited so, to that palace felt like a huge so this honor. So this was a seduction. Oh, yeah. yeah they knew yeah. it. They appealed to his vanity. Mm-hmm, That's brilliant. why they invited him there. Mm. And they knew he wouldn't say no. That was the thing. Right. You can't say no. No, he's one of the richest people in the country. And it's like, awesome. Now he wants me to counsel him, too. I'm just like, whew. You know, I don't normally have cakes, but maybe tonight I will. Because <laughs> I don't want to offend Ooh, you. <laughs> I feel like it's a cake night tonight. <laughs> I'm going to flagellate myself later and make up for it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, my hips, though. <laughs> oh, God. The best theory, by the way, you will love this. And I highly recommend you Google this after we're done because I, I can't go down this rabbit hole. Yes. One of the other theories is that the English were actually behind it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Oh, yeah. That like they, King they wanted- George trying to... That the nobility, they wanted to take him out because of, yeah, what it was doing to the monarchy. Right. And the relationships between the Germans and like just all the all the stuff going on with the war. Like seriously, look into it. Everybody look into it. I don't have time to go through it right now, but it's a Fabulous. crazy. And there's like, you know, quote unquote, smoking guns where there's like telegrams and stuff. But they're so vague that mm-hmm. it could mean anything. You know, it's sure. just, this is this is what happens with this kind of stuff, right? Just conspiracy theories build and build and everyone thinks they figured it out, but they haven't. <laughs> and these things are not meant to be unraveled. Like people go no. out of their way to destroy evidence and it's during no. wartime, di- different country far away. Ultimately, what matters more than anything else is that he's dead. <laughs> he's been eliminated. And, uh, and honestly, pretty much everyone except the Romanovs and like, his some of his followers and his family everyone is fucking thrilled they were over him they wanted nothing to do with this guy anymore they were Mm -hmm. so happy he was gone um whether you thought he was a bad influence or you thought he was satan good goodbye gone forever yusupov is a hero and he ultimately doesn't Mm. really pay for the crime erspeaton is buried on january 2nd at an imperial residence just south of uh saint petersburg and the funeral is attended only by the imperial family and some of their close relations yeah Whoa. um sends a message doesn't it yeah apparently even his family wasn't at the services his daughter says that they were 
I don't know. It's Again, weird. I never know who to believe with these stories. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> but apparently also Alexander talked about, Alex talks about the daughters were with them later that day. So I guess for like the 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 post funeral hang that everyone the, does the, the repast yes. yeah if you will mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and unfortunately dear Father Grigori would not rest in peace oh yeah I don't know if you know this but uh, his body was dug up and burned by soldiers after Nikki abdicated the throne in March of 1917 damn. Yeah. Did they take anything from his person? Uh, probably. He was likely buried with his huge gold cross that he wore, but those things don't exist anymore, so there's no way to know. Um, and he doesn't exist anymore. So there's, that's another reason why we will never really know exactly much about his death, you know, because the, the coroner report in the early 1900s can't be all that great if you wanted to, like, retry and exhume his body it's not possible now right which is which is a shame because i feel like there could be a lot to learn about him and his dna and everything else but sadly uh the russian revolution fucked that up real nice (laughs) right so he's erased completely yeah and and that's all i'm going to talk about in terms of the romanovs now because i will be back in two weeks with i wouldn't say it's a part two of rasputin it really is its own thing um about the ultimate death of the Romanovs and what a dreadful, morbid dreadful, story that is. horribly morbid story. And, and Luke, I'm sure you'll have plenty to say on it as well. So to pretty much conclude, we know perfectly well that to this day, Rasputin is still largely blamed by many for the downfall of the Romanovs. And he alone is not the, the cause. We know. If you did not know that before, I think I've made a great case for that in this episode <laughs> that you it is not did. his fault yeah no. but he is the ultimate scapegoat and uh i'm not sure there's any way we will ever completely know all the things he did and didn't do it's which just is why he's so fascinating which is why he holds this place in our minds and and some of us also kind of don't want to give up on some of the folklore because it makes him more interesting <laughs> than just no. he's this religious guy we love <laughs> myths we love yeah. unexplained because it gives us all agency to yeah. figure it out or to investigate it for me personally i don't think he was a particularly great guy i don't think he was the devil and i don't think he was trying to destroy russia i think he was a very complex individual who on the one hand i really think he believed in his faith quite quite fervently. I do believe he was a holy man. I think he used his faith to get what he wanted and to serve himself. And the faith was so wrapped up in the monarchy. Absolutely. He was a monarchist. He was. And so you could argue that that is kind of evil in and of itself to use religion to get what you want, but a lot of people do it. Not the the first. (laughs) Sadly, probably not the last. So the greatest piece, I think, arguably of Rasputin's legacy is this song, this incredible <laughs> song from the 1970s. <laughs> it was a disco hit. Luke, you mentioned it to me and I didn't register in my mind. And then I played it the other day. It's literally called Rasputin. Yes. Boney M is the name of the band. <laughs> the brilliant artist. Interesting. Name Everyone's favorite. Boney M. <laughs> <laughs> and it's talk about a thing that won't die. Oh my this God. song has had a whole new life on TikTok, social media. Everybody is getting into this groove. Rasputin will not die. 
Mm-mm. We have to play it at the end of this episode. So Absolutely. we hope you enjoy that, folks. Here's the end of our podcast. My favorite part. How can you learn more? Where can you see some of these things in person? Obviously, you can't see Rasputin in person. He's dead and gone. Burned. Damn. Ashes scattered to the winds. <laughs> Hopefully somewhere in Siberia where you can go. And from my research, the absolute best place to go is to the Yusupov Palace where the murder took place. The museum there looks stunning. Really? Everything is in place as it would have been probably around the time that they were forced into exile. Mm-hmm. I imagine, I don't know an, an, a ton about the museum itself. I imagine a lot of it is replica or reclaimed or whatever, because I'm sure right. that, that place got sacked. Yeah, not original pieces, but evoking it. Yeah. Unlikely, but it's giving the vibes. Um, sure. And they do have photographs, so it was probably easy to replicate what it looked Absolutely. like. They give phenomenal tours that I've read about, including one that focuses on the night of the murder. Mm-hmm. And it's full of incredible, terrifying wax figures, which... <laughs> We love that. We love that in a museum. So creepy. Uh, and seemingly f- very cool artifacts as well. That And it's kind of referred to as the Rasputin Museum because okay. it focuses so much on him. Another place, maybe not as legit, <laughs> but interesting, is you could go to the Museum of Russian Erotica. <laughs> Can't even say oh. it without giggling like a schoolgirl. <laughs> I like where this is going. The reason why is because one little conspiracy I had not yet mentioned. It involves a very special artifact. Rasputin's penis. (laughs) (laughs) According according to legend, he was a big boy. (laughs) He was about 11 11 to 12 12 inches. That is an unwanted intrusion no matter how much you (laughs) want I gotta tell you, I see that. I'm going home. Would you like a fistula with your your loving? One of the accounts that was given at the time was that uh, one of the co-conspirators saw Yusupov cut it off. He castrated him. Ooh. Yeah. No proof of this. Okay. Also then, how did they find the dick? I don't know. (laughs) But apparently someone did. And it ended up in Paris where it was worshipped and used for weird cult rituals, like sex rituals. It was a fertility talisman or whatever. And somehow it ended up in the hands of this weird Russian guy who decided to open this erotica museum in Russia. (laughs) I mean, it does not look human, girl. Like it's scary looking. So here's the thing. No one really knows how this guy got his hands on this. And more likely than not, it is believed it's probably a cow penis. But we we need to test it. We need to figure it out. That being said, if I was going to Russia, it would 100% be on my list. A thousand percent. Is this this located near a city or in a city? Oh, it's in St. Petersburg. Oh, so it's not like it's out of the way. If you're you're in Russia. Yeah. Not off the beaten trail, as it were. If you're in Russia, (laughs) if you're in Russia, you're probably going to St. Petersburg, in which case you should definitely hit this up. Have you heard there's a penis in St. Petersburg? (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard that it's probably from a cow horse? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I think that about does it for us. Uh, 
Well, Katie, thank you so much for that incredibly researched monograph about Rasputin. We look forward with great interest to your next installment on the Romanoffs. Thank next you. week, I'll be covering Dead Horse Bay, which yes, is kind of connected to Rasputin, turns out. We're very excited coming back to Brooklyn and Queens for a little exploration. Um, thank you hey. so much. Hey. For- <laughs> hey, boo. Thank you, folks, for listening to this podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to The Morbid Museum wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at The Morbid Museum for more morbid content. Please become a more buddy today. Thank you so much for listening. And join us next time for another gallery talk inside The Morbid Museum podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. He was
lusting and his hunger for power became known to more and more people, the demands to do something about this outrageous man became louder and louder. Of hidden charms. So he-